I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. It's a short paragraph, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the men that trusteth in men, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Now this prophet, this man Jeremiah, was one of those men who was called by God to one of the most difficult and in many ways unpleasant tasks to which any human being can ever be called. He was called to deliver the message of God. And what made his task so particularly trying and difficult was that he was standing more or less alone. There were others in that same country who called themselves prophets, and they claimed to be the prophets of God. But they didn't agree with this man's message. So Jeremiah found himself in this most unhappy and unenviable position of standing as it were alone to deliver a message that cut right across what was being said and thought by the vast majority, almost all, his contemporaries and his fellow countrymen. And yet he did it. And he went on doing it. He went on doing it at all costs and in spite of much suffering and persecution that he had to endure. And the question that naturally arises in our minds is, what is it that enabled the men to do this? Because uh, it can't be explained in terms of his temperament. We know enough about him from what he tells us himself to know that by nature he was a rather timorous kind of person, nervous, apprehensive, a man who was very sensitive and who felt things very keenly. So it wasn't that. It wasn't his natural boldness and temperament. Indeed, it wasn't even that he delighted in being different or taking a stand on his own. He didn't. He tells us repeatedly. Uh, how he almost expostulated with God and pleaded with him that he might give him some other kind of message. And there were times, indeed, when Jeremiah felt so keenly his isolation and his solitude that he even decided not to speak at all. He said, I'll say nothing. Every time I speak, it but arouses antagonism, and the people hate me for it. So I'll say nothing. And there he was, sitting in his corner, as it were, Decide, deciding to say nothing, but then he tells us that this word of God began to burn like fire in his bones, and he had to speak again. And so he spoke, and so he went on. And I say that there is ultimately 
Only one adequate explanation of this man and his great story, and that is that he was absolutely certain and sure that what he was saying was none other than the message and the word of God. And it was for that reason that he had to go on doing it. It was because this word of God burned in his bones that he couldn't desist. He had to continue. So we are reminded of all that in this opening phrase of these verses that we're looking at together. Thus saith the Lord. And whatever Jeremiah might have felt like, whatever he may have chosen, whatever he may have been inclined to do, this was what God said, and he just has to repeat it. And he did repeat it. Now you notice that his message was a message of warning. He was one of the last of the prophets in that land of Israel. God had sent a whole series of prophets to this people, this recalcitrant, sinful people. And he had warned them, he had threatened them, but they wouldn't listen. Jeremiah is about the last. And to him was committed this message of saying that doom and disaster were at hand. That the sin of Israel is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horn of your altars. The thing seems to be so deeply ingrained that nothing can be done at all about it. And God, through this man Jeremiah, begins to tell the children of Israel of the punishment that is coming upon them. Surely, certainly, swiftly. And yet... He still gives them a final opportunity. He still gives them a last word of warning. The end has not yet come. He sends his prophet to them with this tremendous message calling them to repentance. Calling them to realize the position ere it is too late to repent and to return to God. Now, that's what we have in this passage which we're going to look at tonight. It's just one of many such passages in this book. God kept on giving him the same message and sending him to the people. All this, of course, is something that happened actually in history. Unless the children of Israel did not listen to Jeremiah, and because they didn't listen, God meted out upon them the punishment that he had threatened. The Chaldean army came, surrounded the city, destroyed its walls and battlements, entered into the city, raised their great buildings, the temple included, to the ground, and carried the people away captive to a strange land. Even as God had warned them here, O my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and thy treasures to the spoil, and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders, and thou, even thyself, shall discontinue from thine heritage that I gave thee. It was God who had given them that land, but it's going to be taken from them. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in a land which thou knowest not. And that very thing literally and actually and historically happened to them. But this isn't only history. It is history, but it's more than history. It is a very perfect representation and portrayal of God's message to mankind, the whole world, always, everywhere. It is God's message to mankind this evening. And that is why I am calling your attention to it. 
Here we are, men and women living in a world like this. We are all conscious of troubles and difficulties and problems. We are all aware that things are not as they ought to be. Things seem to be going wrong. Life is a burden, life's a problem. And we are ill at ease, and we are anxious and perplexed in many senses and in many respects. And the great question is, why? That's the problem. It's always the problem with mankind. You see, it was the problem with these children of Israel. Things were going wrong and they were aware of that. But the question is, the question confronting them was, well, what is it? Is it something very serious? Or is it something light and superficial? All the false prophets, of course, were unanimous in saying that it was nothing serious at all. So the prophet Jeremiah charges them with this, that they have healed the affliction of the daughter of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You know the message. It's all right, they said. Don't be too alarmed. Don't take it too seriously. Carry on. Things are not as bad as that. We admit they're not perfect, but they're not as bad as that. You needn't be serious about it. Carry on. Go on with your drinking and dancing. Go on with your pleasures. It's all right. It's a temporary crisis. It'll blow over. It'll pass away. There's nothing profound. That was their message. And there's one man had to stand alone and say it's a lie that isn't true. Thus saith the Lord. Now, I say the position is still the same. And we are still confronted by the two messages, the two points of view. There are still two groups in the world, and there are only two groups in the last analysis. There are those who are Christian, and there are those who are not Christian. And what we've really got in this brief paragraph, verses 5 to 8, in this 17th chapter of Jeremiah, is a description of the two groups. You notice it's a series of contrasts. Cursed be the man that trusteth in men. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. We are given a series of contrasts. We are shown certain things about them. We are shown that these contrasts are the result of two different attitudes. They've got two fundamentally different attitudes. The one man trusts in man and maketh flesh his arm and his heart departs from God. The other man is a man who trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. An entirely different attitude. In the same way we are told that their experiences are absolutely opposed. You remember the description of the first man, he we are told is like the heath in the desert, who shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabited. But how, how different is the other? The other is like a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and he shall still go on yielding fruit. The experiences of the two men are entirely different. Yes, and the end of the two men is also entirely different. Cursed, blessed. You see, in this brief paragraph, in its perfect pictorial dramatic manner, we are given this extraordinary portrayal of the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The two old views, they're still with us. As these people face their problems and the threat of calamities, there was this division into two positions. It's exactly the same still tonight. And surely there is nothing more important that we can do at this hour 
than to pay heed and attention to these things. Because we are listening to one or other of these two messages, one or the other of these two positions, even as the children of Israel were of old. Well, therefore, I hurry on to show you certain points which emerge here. The thing, it seems to me, that is so vitally important is that we should realize that the difference between these two positions is a fundamental one. It is an essential one. It is a vital difference. Now, I mean by that something like this, that I sometimes imagine that the supreme achievement of the devil is to blur essential distinctions. He's interested in gray always. He doesn't like black or white. And he has taught mankind to listen to him. We don't like these either-ors, these extremes, we say. We rather like the middle-of-the-road men, the safe men, the men who's not violent on one side or the other. And we're like that in our view of life, as we are in most other things. We say we mustn't have these stark, striking contrasts. But, my dear friends, that is of the very essence of the subtlety of sin and of the devil. You notice that in this paragraph, what we are given is a complete contrast. The two men are absolutely different. They really share very few things in common. The one thing really is that they're both alive in the same world. Otherwise, they are essentially different. What am I trying to say? I'm just trying to say this. That the great lie of the present century and of the last hundred years has been to blur the distinct edges of Christianity and of the Christian faith. The Christian, according to the Bible, is a man who stands out apart. He's discreet. He's distinct. It's a lie which suggests that a man may be a Christian without knowing it. And that indeed you cannot ultimately define a Christian at all. No, I can give you abundant truth, abundant proof of the point I'm making. It, it's something that appears before us constantly as we read newspapers, books, journals, day by day. The same thing keeps on coming up. You get this sort of phrase. Uh, they're writing an obituary notice about some great men or making an assessment about somebody. They say, of course, he, um, he wasn't a formal Christian, but... You see, the whole idea is this, that although a man may deny the very cardinal articles of the Christian faith, well, he may still be a Christian. Look at his life, they say. Look what he's done. Look at his good ideas. Look at various other things about him. Not, not a formal Christian. Not what we normally regard as a Christian, but must be a Christian. In other words, you see, you can't uh, tell what a Christian is. The whole thing is so nebulous, it's, it's so vague and it's so indefinite, I say, that's the devil's own lie. If there is one message that is clearer than any other in this book from beginning to end, it is this, that God's people and the others stand out as absolutely distinct and separate. And unless we know that we are Christians, the probability is that we are not Christians. The things that, are told, that, are, that we are told here, I say, are perfectly definite. It's the difference between cursing and blessing. It's the difference between that heath in the desert and the sea and, the, and that tree by the side of the river. 
It is the utter and entire difference of a man whose trust is in the Lord and a man whose trust is in himself in man. Well, very well, I emphasize it merely for this reason, that we will never know the blessings of the Christian faith. We will never know the blessings of salvation until we are perfectly convinced in our minds that this is something discreet and definite. Take the life of any saint that's ever lived in this world. Take the life of any man who has mastered his circumstances and surroundings. Now, this is a year in which there are great celebrations going to be held with regard to certain martyrs who died at the stake for the Christian faith here in London and in other places 400 years ago in the reign of Queen Mary. Read the lives of those men. Take advantage of this year to do so. Those men who willingly went to the stake and gave down, laid down their lives for what they believed. Now those men are men made on a grand scale in a big mold. Men whom you must admire and revere. Heroes of men. What was their secret? Well, their secret was that they knew exactly what they believed. You don't go to the stake unless you know exactly what you believe. You don't die for some indefinite, vague kind of philosophy. If a man isn't certain, he's not going to lay down his life. Now, the secret of these men was that they knew exactly what they believed. They said, this is true and that isn't. People tried to make them compromise. They said, don't be so extreme. Just give a little concession to Roman Catholicism. Just modify your statement of it just a little bit. They said, we can't. It's either this or that. They can't both be true at one and the same time. A man is either justified by faith alone or else he's saved by the church. It can't be both. It's one or the other. And they knew. They were definite. They were certain. The thing was clear. And it's always been true of God's men who have triumphed in this world, who could smile in the face of death, who could laugh at cruel tyrants, who were more than conquerors. The thing is clear. It's distinct. It's definite. And here I say we are shown the lines of distinction, the points which separate. Now I want to call your attention to this, and this evening I can do nothing more than really introduce the matter by uh, dealing with the first thing. And the first thing, obviously, which differentiates these two people is that they have a fundamentally different attitude. That's the thing that really separates them. There are two attitudes towards life and its attendant circumstances. And as it divided these people in the days of Jeremiah, it divides people in exactly the same way this evening. Well, now, how does it do so? Well, the first thing I think which we see here is this. The Christian, the godly view of life is a, li is a view that makes us consider life as a whole, as an entity. How can I put this? This is something which is emphasized in the Bible from the beginning to end. As you see this great division into God's people and the other people. The characteristic of God's people is that they see life as a whole. They don't see it in a kind of atomistic manner. They don't see it in compartments and segments. 
They're concerned not so much about the details of what happened to them as about the whole thing. Are we not here face to face with one of the greatest dangers that confronts us all? It's almost inevitable, isn't it? And we have to fight in this respect. The danger, of course, is for us all to lose ourselves in the details of life. And to view life, as I say, in that atomistic manner. Now, this is true not only of life in general. It's, it's true of our various uh, professions and callings and work in life. That's why uh, a businessman uh, has his stock taking. That's why he believes in having a balance sheet. You see, if you go on letting a business just go on from day to day, things come in and things go out, uh, you, do, you don't really know what's happening to you. You may be very busy, but you may be losing money. And now and again, you've got to stand right apart and say, very well, there are lots of people coming in and a lot of trade is taking place. We are receiving checks and sending out checks. We seem to be having a marvelously good time, but wait a minute, are we? What's happening to the whole of the business? You see, though you may be tremendously busy in segments and in departments, the business as a whole may be losing money. So you stand back and you have your balance sheet, your stock taking, and your assessment. Now that's it. It's the same, I say, in every respect in life. A man can even preach the gospel as I do here from Sunday to Sunday. And if as long as I look at it merely in terms of coming into this pulpit and preaching twice on a Sunday and getting on, on doing the same thing next Sunday, my ministry will go wrong. I've got to view the whole. What am I doing? What's it leading to? Don't you find this difficult? Isn't it difficult to realize that you get older every day you live? Don't the days and the hours and the weeks and the years slip by and somehow or another we are getting older and we don't realize it. We don't realize we are our age. We remember thinking of people our present age years ago, how old we thought they were. We have arrived at that age. We don't feel that. We don't realize it's happening to us. But it is happening. And uh, that is the case, you see, because we tend to allow circumstances to rule us and to govern us and to dictate our lives to us. We've just got certain things we've got to do. We've got to get up and light the fire and do this and that. And so we spend our days doing these things. And we never seem to realize that life is a whole. And that something tremendous is happening while we're in this life and in this world. Cursing, blessing... It says something big, you see. As we live in this life and in this world, we are doing tremendous things. The life is the most tremendous thing that one can think of apart from God himself. We are in this world and while we think that we are just eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage and buying and selling and planting and sowing and so on, in the meantime, something terrific is taking place. Something's happening to the whole business. Something's taking place in the entire concern that we are not aware of while we are simply immersed in the little details. But it's happening. As it happens in that man's business, it's happening in your life and mine. There's a great movement either in that direction or in this direction. And it's happening to you at this very moment. It's always taking place. 
According to the Bible, the most important thing for us to realize is that there's a fundamental trend in everybody's life. There's a fundamental movement in one direction or else in the other direction. And it is because mankind fails to realize that that he doesn't stop to think and to ask certain vital questions. And the questions are these. What is life? What is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Is this the only life? What happens at the end of this life? You see, those are the questions. Those are the really vital questions. Not those little details that take up so much of our time and attention. But this whole movement. Because according to the Bible, I am passing through this world and I'm going on to a destiny. Blessing, cursing. A total movement of my whole being and personality. And you know, every one of us is going through that process. But do we realize that? The mother can be so busy in cooking for her husband and her children and darning their socks and making their clothing and keeping the house clean that she forgets that she's a living soul and that she's determining her eternal destiny while she's doing these very things. She's forgotten the whole business and has been lost in the details of the little departments. Very well then, may I put it as a question before we go any further. Do you know what the fundamental trend of your life is? Do you know for certain in which direction you're moving? Have you ever sat down to think about that? That's what the Bible always calls us to do. It calls us to stop and to think and to consider. It says, look here, see yourself as a whole and ask yourself this question. Which direction are you moving in? You must be moving in one or the other. What's happening to you as a totality, as a personality? Where are you going? Because as you live from day to day and hour to hour, all that is involved and all that is being determined. Well, now that having put it like that, that leads us to the second vital question, which is this. It's all very well to say that to someone. But how can I know? How am I to decide? How am I to determine? And that, you see, brings us up against the great and central and primary question, namely the question of authority. It always comes back in the last analysis to this question of authority. I've said that we are all here together in the same life and in the same world. We are subject to the same accidents. We are subject to the same things that are happening. If a war breaks out, we'll all be involved together, as we were in the last war, whether we are Christians or not Christians. Ah, yes, I say that is true, but fundamentally there are these two great attitudes and they make all the difference in the world at a time of war and when things go wrong. Yes, but says someone, how do I know which is right? What is the authority? And here again, you see, there are only two authorities. There are only two views. There are only two positions. It's either men, or else it is thus saith the Lord. And you and I at this moment are in one or two of those positions. We are either basing our view upon men, or else... We are basing it upon 
God as he has revealed it in this book, which is his word. Now, I, I like to think of the business of the Christian church and of preaching in those terms. Every Christian is in the position of this man, Jeremiah. And the business of Christian preaching is to do precisely what Jeremiah had to do in his day and in his own generation. It is to see that this word of God, this word of the Lord, this thus saith the Lord, is heard amidst the Babel of Isis. We are familiar, are we not, with the Babel of Isis? We know what men are saying. Never have we been so well aware of what men says. It's an age of advertising. It's an age of propaganda. It's an age of selling goods, of putting it over, as they say. Those are the phrases, getting in the idea, suggesting it, throwing it out. And we are literally being bombarded by words. Modern men, perplexed, bewildered, unhappy and uncertain, is being addressed from morning to night by newspapers, radio, television. A thousand and one voices come clamoring at him, speaking to him, suggesting to him ways of life, means of living, answers to questions. Here he is in the midst of them all. Man is still speaking. And he is shouting at us. And the voices, I say, are a veritable babel. And though they may seem to be contradicting one another and disagreeing with themselves, they all really belong to the same realm. They all come from men. Whether it is that they advise you just to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, or whether it is the highest idealism that is confronting the human race at this moment, whether it is that they say, look here, in the name of decency, we ought to rise up and prohibit the atomic bomb, or whether it is the view that says, well, doesn't matter very much what happens. Let's get on with it while we are here and have as good a time as we can. And don't bother your mind too much about these great questions. Don't go and meet war. It'll come soon enough. Just let yourself go and have your fling. Fundamentally, they're the same. They're simply the views of men. That's one side, you see. It's men speaking to us and men telling us about ourselves and about life. And it's the majority vice, of course. The thousands, the millions, the large battalions, the money, it's all on that side. And here on the other side stands the Christian message as Jeremiah stood apparently almost alone to face the false prophets and the mass of the populace in his own day and generation. And what have we got to say? We have simply one thing to say, and it is this, Thus saith the Lord. And it's the only reason for speaking. It's the only plea for preaching. Let me put it personally. It's my only reason for being in this pulpit. I'm not here to advise my own opinions, my own ideas. My one command, my one commission, is to deliver this message of God. Thus saith the Lord. I know nothing apart from this. I'm simply trying to expand it, to show what it says. That is our only authority. And I don't ask anybody to listen to what I'm saying tonight. For any reason at all, but that this is thus saith the Lord. 
I don't ask anybody to consider the Christian faith and to become a Christian for any other reason. I never ask people to to become Christians because of certain experiences. I don't ask you to become a Christian because I can point to somebody else and say, look at that person. He was once not a Christian. He's now a Christian. Listen to what he's got to say. He gives his experience. I don't say that. I don't recommend my message in terms of experiences for the good reason that there are many agencies that can do that. If you put up happiness and things like that as the only test, well, the world can meet it. It can match it. My dear friend, my only reason for preaching this message is that I believe it is God's word. And that whether you and I are going through an intense period of misery and of trial and of tribulation or not, we must believe it because it is what it is. That's the reason for believing the gospel. Because it's God's word. I don't want to plead with you and appeal to you and wheedle you, as it were, into it. No, no. You either believe it's God's word or else you don't. If you believe it's God's word, you won't be long before you make clear your decision for it. But that's the only reason for becoming a Christian. It's our only authority. Well, now, that is the claim that is made always for it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Look at these Old Testament writers. Not a man of them stands up and says, listen to me, this is what I say, this is what I think. Not one of them says, look here, I've been studying life and its problems, and I've come to this conclusion, not a man. They all stand up and they say this, thus saith the Lord. Some of them, like Jeremiah, as I've already reminded you, have almost said, would to God I hadn't got to say it. I know it isn't liked, I know it isn't popular, I know it'll be ridiculed and laughed at, but I can't help it. Thus saith the Lord, the burden of the Lord, God's given it me. And the same is exactly true of the apostles of the New Testament. Ask the apostle Paul why he preached, and this is his answer. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. The love of Christ constraineth me. He's a man under commission. He's the bond slave of Jesus Christ. It's God who called him. It's God who sent him and who's, who's commanded him to deliver his message. It was Christ who sent the apostles all out. You shall be my witnesses. Go out, he says, and preach the word. And they went and did so. And I say it is the only reason for proclaiming it and it's the only reason for believing it. What's it mean? Well, let me analyze this great phrase, thus saith the Lord. That is a description of the Bible. And my position tonight is to put before you the Bible view of life. And to do so because I claim that it is the word of God. That it is a unique book. That I know nothing and have no authority whatsoever apart from this book. It is something the book claims for itself. It claims that it has been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. All scripture, it saith itself, is given by inspiration of God. In other words, what it claims for itself is that the Holy Spirit has breathed the message into the minds and the hearts of the men who wrote. That's what they say themselves. 
Prophecy of old, says the Apostle Peter, came not by the will of men. It is not of any human interpretation, he says. But holy men of God spake as they were moved or led or borne along by the Holy Spirit. That's the claim. So you see, we claim for this that it has a special and a unique authority. That it is a revelation of God's mind, of God's truth. So we confront the modern world in exactly the same way as Jeremiah confronted his contemporaries. And we've got nothing to say except this, thus saith God. It's a revelation of God himself to mankind. It is a revelation of God himself and the truth which he tells us about himself. And how vital it is that we should start at that point. You listen to people talking today and they express their views about God and what they think of God and what they think God ought to do and what God ought not to do. They even claim to themselves a right and a power to determine God and they make a God after their own image. But I have no knowledge of God apart from what I read in this book. I, with all other men, have a sense of God within me, but that doesn't give me a real knowledge of God. My ideas, my philosophy is not enough. As the Apostle Paul put it to those Corinthians, the world by wisdom knew not God. They tried to find him, but they couldn't. But God has revealed himself, and we have the revelation in this book. His character his might, his holiness, his greatness, his righteousness, it's all here. And you either believe it or you don't. You either believe that God is like this, or else he's an indulgent God, such as you'd like him to be. It's one or the other. And you've got to take your choice. But in exactly the same way, this book is a revelation of what God tells us about the world. It tells us about the origin of the world, the beginning of life. You see, you either believe the modern theories and suppositions, which say that it's all accident and chance, and that it cannot be explained at all, but that there's some impersonal, vital force that happens to have done things, either that, or else that God in the beginning made heaven and the earth and all things therein. It's one or the other. Is there a design? Is there a meaning? Is there a purpose? Or is it all just a clash of atoms and all the particles within the atoms? What is it? Is there a grand purpose or isn't there? Now, you see, you either believe what men say, or you believe what this says. And this claims that this is the revelation of what God teaches. By faith, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, we believe that the world was made out of nothing by the word of God. And in the same way, with regard to men, we know men's ideas about men, don't we? 
the psychological school, the biological school, the economic school, and all the other schools. But here we have something that claims to be God's view of men, that tells us about his origin, that he hasn't come and worked his way up from the primitive slime, but that he's been made by God in his own image, fashioned by the hands of the Creator, which is true of men, it's one or the other. And we are told about men's purpose and function in life. And in this world, it's all here. This claims to be God's teaching about that. And I either listen to men or I listen to this. And then about history. We know what men say about history. They're baffled by it at the present time, but we know their theories and their teachings and their ideas. But if you really want to know about history, you must come here. Here is God's teaching of history, God's view of history. God began it, God will end it. The certainty of it all, this is revelation. And then about eternity itself. For the Bible not only tells us about this world, but about the unseen. Men speculate. They dabble with spiritism. They talk about another dimension. They play with the suprasensory ideas. All right, let them do so. But they're simply groping, vaguely in the dark. They don't know. Here is the authority of God. This is what God says about eternity beyond time. It's a revelation. It's inspired, and it's an inspired account of God's teaching. That's the Bible. And what Christianity does is to hold that before men. With all the voices on your radios and your televisions and your cinemas and all the speechifying of men, there comes this old word, Thus saith the Lord. Ere it is too late, listen to it. As Jeremiah spoke to his contemporaries and warned and appealed and said, Are you still not ready to listen? Here is what God says. So, I have the great and the high privilege of standing before you and asking you to listen to what God has said and has revealed concerning his own thoughts about all these questions. So I end by putting it in the form of a message. For the Bible, after all, is not just a detached textbook. It isn't simply a kind of library of information. Wonderful though that is about the mind of God upon all our leading questions. It's more than that. It's a message. It's God addressing us. It's God speaking to us. God sends his servants to speak to us as he sent his Jeremiah. And this is what he tells us. He tells us why things are as they are. Thus saith the Lord. It isn't an economic question. It isn't a political question. It isn't a question of a right division of labor or of wealth or of any one of these other matters. 
It isn't a particular philosophic political view held by one group on one side of a curtain and the other view held by others on the other side of the curtain. No, no. This is it, says God. Thus saith the Lord. It's the same thing on both sides of the iron curtain. It's men in sin and in rebellion against me. It isn't the haves and the have-nots. It is that all of them together are more interested in themselves than they are in me. The world is as it is, torn, divided, warring, alarmed, because man has forgotten God. He doesn't listen to God. He listens to men. He hasn't listened to the thus, saith the Lord. Man is as he is, and the world is as it is. Because men made perfect by God listened to the devil, rebelled against God, and has brought doom and disaster upon himself. That's the explanation. But it also tells us what God thinks about that. And at this point I not only understand Jeremiah and sympathize with him, I feel like him. Don't laugh at me. I'd like to be a popular preacher. I'd like to say things that please people. I'd like to send you home feeling happy and comforted every Sunday. I'd like to say things that you say how wonderful, how beautiful, how nice. I'd give everything, anything if I could do that. But the question is, do I do what I'd like to do? Or do I deliver the message of this book? And if I deliver the message of this book, I must tell you about the wrath of God. I've got to do what poor Jeremiah had to do. I've got to say this. He have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever because of your sin. That's God's message to men. That man is as he is because of his sin. And God hates that sin. And God's going to punish that sin. God cannot abide that sin. He won't tolerate it. He's going to deal with it. He's said so. And he's gone on repeating it. He's put sin under condemnation. And his wrath must come upon sin. He's said so. But thank God we don't stop there. That's a part of the message, my friend. And if you reject that part of the message, don't believe what I'm about to say. If you believe that you can have the love of God without first acknowledging his holy wrath, you don't understand love. But the Bible does go on to tell us what God has done about our sin and our rebellion and our arrogance. This is a book packed with history. It not only tells us that God made the world and that men sinned in his folly, but that God came down into the garden and spoke to men and said... In spite of this, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. And read the account of the unfolding of that promise in the Old Testament. How he chooses a particular man and turns him into a nation. Abram, you see, children of Israel. And then the tribe of Judah, the seed of David, he's preparing. The seed of the woman is coming. And at last, in the fullness of the times, he came. Thus saith the Lord. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. And as you listen to him, this is what you hear. 
The Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, he says, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come to deal with this terrible problem that has defeated men, patriarchs, the best men. They've all gone down. He's come from heaven into the world in order to deal with it. He takes it upon himself. And he dies in order to deal with it. He bears the punishment of sin. He gives his life a ransom for many. There is a way out. There is a way of reconciliation to God. A way back to God. A way which will lead us to peace and safety. So that when the whole world is involved in the conflagration of the final judgment and doom and disaster, irrevocable and eternal, will fall upon all the godless. Those who have fled for refuge into Jesus Christ will be eternally and everlastingly safe. That's the message. Thus, saith the Lord. The world in the 20th century, in spite of all its education and culture and advances, is rapidly moving in the direction of disaster. It's never been so evident and obvious. And it's all due to this thing called sin. And there is only one way to deal with it. It is the way of God's own making in his own beloved Son, the Savior of the world. And what God is saying to us tonight is this. Listen, listen. Ere it be too late, there is still time. You're involved in all this. Your life, as I said at the beginning, is a whole, and it's moving on. You're either going to blessing or cursing, heaven or hell. But you needn't go to hell. You needn't go to cursing. Christ so loved you in spite of your sin and all that he died for you. You have but to acknowledge and to confess your sin. You have but to see that all your troubles and the trouble of the whole world come from that central forgetfulness of God and this self-centeredness and self-occupation and failure to realize the greatness and the dignity of man and of life. Acknowledge it, confess it. That's what repentance means. Don't defend yourself. Don't put up any plea. Acknowledge you're all wrong and especially for listening to men. Repent and believe the gospel and God will forgive all your sins, will let you know that he's reconciled you unto himself, will give you a new life and a new nature. You'll become a new man and you'll begin to see everything in a new way and in a new light so that come what may, you will never be ashamed, never taken unawares, but always ready, because you belong to him. Thus saith the Lord. You believe him? If so, tell him so.
and give your life yourself to him. Amen.